it's been really great speaking with you, Emily, and, yeah. and enjoy uh, reflecting on this um, very funny, very strange. I'm still going to watch this movie. I'm still going to watch it all the time. But I will stop every once in a while when I show my kids and be like, okay, but you know that they actually didn't have a lot of witches then, and that was more a Puritan thing. Because I really, if nothing else, I love being the downer teacher who takes something fun and like silly, and then is like, but really a lot of people die. But really, this is serious, guys. <laughs> Welcome back to Antisocial Studies and part three of my series, Emily Learns About Monty Python and the Myths of the Middle Ages with John. Hey everyone, I'm John Muscatello, I'm the founder of Marco Learning, and I am also a medieval historian and history teacher, so I'm really glad to be here with Emily again. Yeah, and I'm getting exposed by how little I actually know about the Middle Ages. I'm finding that most of my knowledge comes from Monty Python and that book, Pillars of the Earth. Those are the two things that I'm learning from. So the last thing we had to talk about is I think, you tell me if I'm wrong, the most important institution of the Middle Ages, which is the church, right? My understanding yes. is that when Rome falls, there's this power vacuum and things kind of fragment. And really the only institution that is still somewhat unified and providing order is the church. How much of that is wrong? That is 100% correct. That was actually in the list of the previous um, one that we were talking about. That was the one where you said, yes, the church seems really involved in, in, in legal matters. And that's absolutely right. Awesome. Um, so there are there are secular laws and law codes that, that kings and lords kind of dealt with. And there was church law, which we call canon law, C-A-N-O-N, -N, canon law. Um, and that was its own set of very specific rules about like what makes a marriage um, and and uh, all of that. But um, the church, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages is uh, becomes the most powerful institution in the world, actually, at that hmm. point. Um, I guess that's interesting to think about that if you, you know, we always talk about, you know, if I'm thinking about world history and we're talking about all the civilizations of this post-classical era, Europe is like, oh, they're all fragmented, tiny little states. And so you're talking about the Abbasid Caliphate or the Song Dynasty or these other places, the Mongols. But then if you think of it that way, where you're like, well, what's like the Christian territory of Europe, then they become a really formidable state, right? When you, can, when you yes. think of it that way. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. And it's also, it's so tricky for us in the West too, because the Catholic Church becomes well, it's the thing that in the power vacuum after Rome, the history of Christianity is really the history of Christianity in Europe. And mm -hmm. almost none of us know anything about Ethiopian Christianity, which is 19th centuries, right from the Book of Acts. There's an Ethiopian who founds that church, and it's continuously active as a as a Christian monarchy. The Syriac Church, Nestorians in Central Asia, mm -hmm. um, North African and Sub-Saharan African Christianity. And then, of course, modernity is about the spread, in part, the spread of Christianity all around the world. So that global history gets lost. Uh, with the so much attention being put on the Catholic Church in Europe. But the Catholic Church in Europe was also really good at collecting land. People would like, you know, because if you if you wanted to get a will done in the Middle Ages, who'd you call? Your priest. Mm -hmm. And what would he say about, he would go through like, okay, you're going to give your son this and your daughter that, nothing. And you're going to give your brother a little throw bean to him. Well, what are you giving to Mother Church? Yeah. <laughs> That's that section. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like when you like in the Middle Ages, your you know, your birth gets kind of recorded and made legitimate by the church. Your marriage yep. gets recorded and made legitimate by the church. Your death gets made legitimate by the church. It's like every facet of your life, 
for it to be, you know, it's like if a tree falls in the woods, right? It's like if someone's born, but the church doesn't record it, do they really exist? And it's like, well, kind of, but, but legally maybe kind of not. Yeah. And Emily, you bring up a really good problem for medieval historians, which is the best record keeper in the Middle Ages was the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So they're all kind of, merchants had all kinds of papers too. But after a while, that receipt, that 30 year old receipt from medieval Macy's like doesn't mean anything. So you chuck it, right? And those or little contracts and other things. So the medieval church as a repository of important records, almost all the classical texts, like you're going to go like grab your copy of of Herodotus's histories or Plato's whatever, those are medieval copies. Hmm. The Masoretic text, the Hebrew text of the of the Hebrew Bible is a medieval text. Almost all of what you grab onto is from the Middle Ages. Okay, I need you to I need you to debunk this for me. I remember reading somewhere, and it might have been a headline or it might have been somewhere terrible, that there were times when the Catholic Church destroyed Bibles that were written in the vernacular. Because they were like, no, no, if you need the, if you need to understand the Bible, you come to us. Yes. In fact, the, the early modern and late medieval translators of the Bible were burned to death with copies of their translations at their feet. What? So, okay, this so wait, is... for context, so like printing press, Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation are all right around the transition point, end of the 1400s, yeah. early 1500s. And one of Martin Luther's big things was like, people should be able to read their own Bible. So it should be written in like vernacular English instead of Latin. Okay, but I didn't exactly. know that extent. So if my job, if I was like, great, I'm gonna go and translate a bunch of books into vernacular English, I would get killed? Yes, <gasps> which is why, you know, you like, so William Tyndale did the first English translation of the Bible in 1525 and was running and they, they had secret printing presses of this that they were moving around. Uh, Luther commissioned a German translation. There were early French translations. The translation of the Bible out of the Latin, what we call the Vulgate, a translation from uh, the 400s, that was a huge power shift away. So the Catholic Church is a huge, what do we say, a huge landowner, mm -hmm. a huge tradition keeper and like marker of your life. It was a record keeper. It was a repository of classical texts. It was a massive centralization of power that, um, translation threatened, that lay preaching, like an ordinary person going out and like, I got a theological opinion. No, you don't. Yeah. No, you don't. Shut up. And <laughs> you don't have a robe. I have a robe. No. Yeah. Look who's wearing the robe. And, and this, this is one of those things, like we see the um, scene um, of the guys, the flagellants hitting themselves in the head with a wooden block. And this is one, actually it was an order called the flagellants who went around whipping themselves, beating themselves, um, kind of inflicting on their body, mortifying their flesh to appease God. Um, but that was one of dozens of movements. The Catholic Church was actually very clever and creative at absorbing these things. So little kid sees the Virgin Mary in a rock. Well, let's come over and try to verify this. Oh, okay. We verify it. Now this is a shrine. We own it. Um, or like, we're going to start this order. Uh, Francis of Assisi, like that guy is really interesting. He went rogue in the 1200s and he was like, I'm giving up my whole, my father's estate. He loved animals. Um, and he actually was the guy who wrote the song, I think um, the, the hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King, about all how all the animals, like Dr. Doolittle of the Middle Ages. <laughs> and he 
And he started this order that was really rebellious. That's part of the reason that Pope Francis today picked his name Mm -hmm. um, was he's the first Pope Francis going at this order. But the Catholic Church had absorbed that order and its magical mojo and brought it in. (laughs) So so the big one of the big questions in history is like, did the Protestant Reformation like save the Catholic Church from decline or was the Catholic Church vibrant and alive anyway? dealing with all of these how would the protestant reformation have saved them from decline by like sparking this new desire of like oh shoot we got to really revive our faith is that what yeah like so so, and it does actually the catholic counter-reformation is a huge deal right the council of trent in the 1500s like kind of remakes and Mm. renovates catholicism um but protestants felt like they had to save christianity from the false gospel of the catholic church that salvation by works you could buy indulgences you could purgatory, all this stuff. And that kind of, we're going to go back to the basics, go back to the great, good old golden age of the ancient world. Hmm. And so I guess there was some simplicity, at least again, like on last episode where I weirdly started arguing for absolute monarchy again. I think I came down on the side of absolute monarchy in the last episode. I think you're a monarchist. I think I'm a monarchist. I think if I can, if, let me just, I'll be, I'll be the, I'll be the queen. And then it'll be fine. But um, I also think, you know, again, there was stability with the Catholic Church. That wasn't necessarily good. It didn't make everyone's lives necessarily as free and amazing and whatever as possible. But there was also this stability and this unity of purpose, which we have lost in the Enlightenment, right? So it's like this transition from community to individualism. And it's like, well, yeah, community, you're, you know, it's ruled by the majority. And if you're not a Catholic or whatever, then you are screwed. But again, there, there is this stability. And so my understanding too of the way I teach the, the later part of the Middle Ages is it's sort of like on a line graph, you have the power of the church, which stays pretty constant. And then you have the power of the kings, which starts out at like nothing, like you talked about last episode. But then by around the 1400s, they now can compete and they can provide that same sort of stability. And so they start, to me, it seems like then the Protestant Reformation is also just an opportunity, right? If you're King Henry VIII, you're like, oh, great. I can just become head of my own church and take all this land that the Catholic Church owned. And so I think Protestants get a little high and mighty, but, you know, I think a lot of the, the beginnings of it were very true, but there were also a lot of people who saw that as just like, oh, well, you know, I want to take away some of what the Catholic Church has, which is a lot of money and a lot of land and a lot of power. Yeah. And when King Henry um, d- dissolved the monasteries, that was the largest land grab in world history. Wasn't it like it was a third? Largest... It was like a third of all land in England had, had belonged to the church yep. or something. Yeah. Overnight. And That's then one generation right. later, Elizabeth is sending people out to explore the world. And it's like, where'd you get all that money from? Right. Um, it's incredible. That's really interesting. And so, so my my last thing, because I think my favorite scene, which makes me makes me feel like a terrible person, is the bring out your dead scene. And I think in a year of a pandemic, it feels especially tone deaf. But I feel like I have to ask about it, right? My understanding too is that one of the reasons the power of the church was weakened. Okay. Was the church weakened by the Black Death or were they strengthened? Meaning, were they weakened because people were like, wait, uh, why are we all dying? And priests are dying because they're coming and praying over the dead, dying people. And and now we have no answers. Or were they like, oh, shoot, we must not be Christian enough. We need to like double down. Oh, good question. I think it's a both end. And I think... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's probably complicated, but a couple couple things to think about. The most 
you might have taught this or read this before, but Boccaccio's to Boccaccio's to Cameron has at the prologue this description of the Black Death in Italy, which is absolutely devastating. I mean, the whole the bubonic plague was so horrific; these black pustules that formed in your arms. And, mm-hmm. um, but he more interestingly talks. Get past the medical description, and you get to what happens to people's hearts and minds. And he talks about people who kind of lost their way. And that's something I think we can relate to a little bit this year, the feeling of being lost. Like, if you haven't felt lost at some point this year, you had a really weird year. Um, because <laughs> of the normal experience of, and we've had a very, um, how do I say this? We had nothing like the Black Death. Um, right. the, the Black, if we had the bubonic plague and no technology to fight it, there'd be 80 million dead bodies in this country. Um, so it's at a scale we can't even fathom. But Boccaccio talks about how like people lost their way, that family bonds became meaningless, mm. that the whole like world became kind of empty. Um, people just like ditched, they, they would like leave a dying family member behind. They stole from each other. Wait, so they... that part of Money Python is not a joke. That part of Money Python, right, where he puts his dad on the cart and he's like, I'm not dead yet. And that's like a thing we all laugh at, but oh my gosh. That's terrible. It's, it's like the it's like this really sad, solemn part of Boccaccio's writing about living through a pandemic and watching it shatter Ugh. the whole social fabric. So I think that that way, the Catholic faith and the Catholic Church was really damaged because all social institutions, trust, had been destroyed. Mm. But in another way, and I think this has happened in our in our country this year as well, is people feel like I had my whole life under control one thing after another. And then this came in like a meteor. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean? Is life meaningless or is this just some sort of accident of science or is this god acting in the world these are these are kinds of spiritual level struggles i think that people are dealing with yeah um in the midst of everything else yeah that's true i guess the answer would be it depends on each individual person right because it's like i can imagine some people who again might have been already having some doubts about like but why do i have to go here and ask this guy about this thing they would probably use that as an excuse to be like see they don't know what they're talking about either they're in the midst of like I can't remember which crusade they're on, but they're in the midst of like not winning back the Holy Land, which the Pope has said God has blessed him to do. So I can imagine there are people who would pick that out as evidence of maybe the church not being who they say they are or not maybe having a straight connection to God. But then other people seeing it as an excuse to, or an opportunity to say, oh, I, we must just need to like commit more to this. I think we're seeing that today too, right? We're like, we, we're kind yeah. of all cherry picking whatever we want it to be proof of. So I think this wraps up like what you've been saying that we are, we are still medieval. <laughs> like maybe the, <laughs> maybe the trappings of the world around us have changed and become modern, but ultimately like people are people and people have been people throughout history. So it's like when we look back at something like the middle ages, we can laugh and we can be like, Oh, haha, she's a witch or whatever. But also it's like those people were no different than we are. We just have zoom or whatever. I love doing that too. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sean. That was great. Great. Thanks. Okay. Yay. We're done. 